Morena, and welcome to the Dawn Chorus. I'm Bernard Hickey, and this is my daily podcast that goes out with an email newsletter every weekday via my substack, which is called The Kaka. I tend to look at the political economy with a focus on housing affordability, climate change, and child poverty, which I think are all pretty closely connected and in particular, uh, based on our problems with not enough new homes being built, and particularly not enough new, or many at all, affordable homes being built. One of the issues we have is that not enough new land, either greenfields or brownfields land, has been available for development for housing. And to do that, a council needs to rezone land, often it's rural land on the fringes of town, or it might be industrial or commercial land somewhere close to the centre of town, and and then provide the infrastructure so that homes can be built on either that greenfields or brownfields land. Now that requires a negotiation with a property developer, someone who owns the land, and needs a plan change to be able to develop the land. And that's a negotiation between the council and the developer. And often, in order to get that plan change, the council will ask for a development contribution from the developer to help pay for the pipes and the roads and the footpaths, which the council usually has to pay for, uh, at least half of. Sometimes NZTA or Waka Kotahi, the central government, gets involved. And then, of course, there are negotiations with the likes of the Ministry of Education, the Ministry of Health, uh, what used to be called district health boards, and many others, if you've got a particularly large development that needs public facilities like schools and hospitals. So developers just can't go ahead and um, build a whole bunch of houses on some land. They need the approval of a council in particular. Now, for almost all of the country, when that uh, negotiation happens, the only payment the developer has to make to the council is a development contribution. Councils argue that these contributions are usually not enough to pay for all of the infrastructure costs connected to a development, but it's a substantial amount. It's also a relatively new thing. We uh, take it for granted now that property developers always paid development contributions, but that's not the case. Through until the uh, early 90s, usually these costs were borne by the council itself and uh, also the government was involved in funding things like electricity, water, the Ministry of Works got involved, um, a lot of roads earthworks were organised and paid for by the central government as a public service. Unfortunately, with the um, integration of of councils in the late 80s, early 90s, the changes to the Public Finance Act, the State Sector Act, and the uh, operations of the Local Government Commission, we saw a generalised approach from councils to try to make someone else pay for the infrastructure for new housing developments. That someone else being property developers or often it was the hope that the government would pay. The government itself was also keen on reducing its debt, reducing its spending on infrastructure, uh, reducing its investment 
in public assets and therefore it wanted the council to pay. So there was a lot of focus on this negotiation that happens between councils and property developers. Now, one of the problems we have now, of course, is that a lot of the uh, wealth that is now stored in residential land values uh, is based on the fact that we don't have enough uh, zoned and serviced residential land that people are building on to provide extra supply into the market. So we have a restriction on supply. It's, economists would say there is very low elasticity of supply for housing. And it's, it's one of the big factors driving all sorts of things in our economy. For example, the Reserve Bank's money printing and monetary policy easing during COVID would not have had nearly the same effect if we had enough housing supply. Our housing affordability wouldn't be the worst in the world for both buyers and renters if we had plenty of extra housing supply. But one of the reasons we don't have that housing supply is that councils and governments don't feel that they can pay for the infrastructure needed to open up that supply. In my view, that's actually a political choice based on a uh, now wrong assumption that the government's debt needs to be low, uh, limited at 30% of GDP, and uh, it's a political choice by councils to keep rates and debts low. Um, councils have plenty of uh, capacity in their balance sheets to borrow more. They um, often have very, very high uh, credit ratings compared to other councils globally, and the government itself also has a very, very high credit rating and very, very low debts compared to everyone else in the world. By the by, that means that um, we're at a stasis, a sort of frozen point in our debate about how to fund new housing developments and also ultimately how to redistribute some of the unearned wealth, the extra $1 trillion that landed on the heads of anyone lucky enough to be a landowner after about 2000 because of these changes in policies around government funding of infrastructure, uh, much higher net migration, falling interest rates and also some increase in the cost of um, building new homes. But the actual construction costs, I don't think, is the major reason for our affordability crisis. It's mostly about obscenely high land values for residential housing. And that wealth is privately owned, but in effect is publicly created. Because if your land wasn't zoned residential, it wouldn't be worth much. So getting that zoning having the right to turn a bunch of dirt into a development or a bunch of houses or townhouses or to change an old factory into a residential development that connects up with the council pipes, that is a very valuable public action, sometimes funded by ratepayers and taxpayers at large, which creates private profits. And they are unearned profits. Now you could argue there's earning done in getting your lawyers <laughs> and your consultants to go through the process of a district plan change via the RMA, that's true. But um, there's no actual labour involved here or great innovation. That trillion dollars in value dwarfs any of the value created from actually producing anything or exporting anything or coming up with new innovations. So it's at the heart of our political economy that creation of private wealth from public actions.
So, what happens if, for example, in the process of agreeing to a district plan change, the council says to the developer, we won't give you this plan change and make you wealthy unless you carve off some of that wealth, unearned wealth, and give it to a community housing trust which will build some affordable houses, most likely on the land which is now being rezoned. So we help to redistribute that wealth and we try to improve the uh, supply of affordable housing. Now the bigger picture here, of course, is that uh, we're creating a very unequal society where most of the wealth is held by relatively few people and uh, a significant portion of the income goes to a relatively few people. And the people who are at the bottom of the heap, the ones who don't own assets and have relatively low incomes, tend actually to be the ones doing the work, looking after the very wealthy. And you create a risk here of a very divided society where the wealthy eventually have to build big old fences, uh, create gated communities and um, pay money to those people who are looking after them, cleaning their houses, cooking their food, uh, taking their kids to school, teaching their kids, protecting them from home invasion, those sorts of things. And if you're going to live in an area which has incredibly high land values, it's quite difficult to find those people to do the work because they've got nowhere to live. So there is actually some logic in rich people surrendering some of those unearned gains so that poor people can afford to live somewhere close to the rich people and look after them. And so that, that's, uh, that, it's never been argued like that, but the idea of inclusionary zoning, so this is what this podcast is all about, so it's taken me 10 minutes to get there, but uh, uh, hopefully the headlines gave you enough of a hint that this is what it was about. Inclusionary zoning is something that's used all around the world, in the United States, the UK, Australia, in which a developer is forced, required by a council or a government to carve off a certain percentage of that land or the value of that land and hand it over to a community housing trust to provide affordable houses to rent or to buy. It's done in the UK, Australia and the United States in a widespread way, but has never really caught on or being used here. Until 2003, when a young relatively young town planner called Scott Figginshow, an American, came to Queenstown to work for the Queenstown Lakes District Council. And being a bit of an innovator, he thought, hang on a minute, why don't we introduce inclusionary zoning to Queenstown? We've got a problem, not enough people to do all the work, not enough affordable housing for all these billionaires building their bunkers here. Uh, how about we do some inclusionary zoning on the next development? And that development was the Jack's Point development. For those of you who know your um, property development disaster stories uh, and success stories, Jack's Point is one of those. It uh, took down Hanover Finance during the global financial crisis and a few others, uh, and, uh, but now is a thriving big uh, community, 2003. And when the council granted the district plan change for Jack's Point, it made the developers hand over 5% of the value of the development to a new thing 
created by the council called the Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust. And that community housing trust is tasked with using that money to build new affordable houses, to rent them out, or in some cases to sell them on. And for the subsequent district plan changes and various plan changes since then, the Queenstown District Council has been making developers pay the 5%, which just quietly helped the community trust build uh, over 100 houses, and it has uh, another couple of hundred in the works. Now, this hasn't solved the affordable housing crisis in Queenstown, but it's certainly gone some way to do it. And because we are now in the stuck in this position where our central government will not deal with this through either a capital gains tax or a residential land tax, the politics of it are increasingly um, toxic, and it looks like with the current um, electoral landscape that uh, we'll have a national act government next year that uh, is uh, that means any change in the situation is very unlikely. And even if Labour were to get back in, the Prime Minister said she would never touch a capital gains tax or a wealth tax in her political lifetime. So for at least a decade, we're not going to get a solution to this problem from the centre. Inclusionary zoning is an opportunity to reform from the bottom up because Queenstown is looking to embed the practice of inclusionary zoning in its new district plan. That will make it a very um, interesting model for other councils around the country to adopt, particularly now with where you have these Resource Management Act reforms going through Parliament, which will mean every district plan in the country over the next decade will have to be rewritten. Why not include inclusionary zoning in every one of these new district plans? And that's why it became very interesting because not only is it a model for other councils to use, but now we have an opportunity to use it and introduce it in a widespread way. So uh, everyone's watching this Queenstown Lakes District Council attempt to put it into the district plan. The proposal was made uh, earlier this year, before the council elections, and lo and behold, it became a hot topic in the local elections, in part because the... Lakes, Queenstown Lakes District Council decided to expand somewhat the use of this inclusionary zoning idea. Previously, it was really aimed at the big developers, the big chunks of land on the edge of town. Those people who were doing infill developments, so for example, you've got a large section and you want to carve off a couple of bits out the back to build a couple of townhouses, uh, they weren't covered by the inclusionary zoning rules or practices. Uh, the proposal from the Queenstown Lakes District Council uh, that was made earlier this year did include the mums and dads doing the little developments out the back and also those people who owned land in a, in a, uh, that wasn't part of one of these new big developments, an empty section and were planning to build a house on it. And the idea was that once you'd build a house, then you had to contribute 5% of the value back to the council and back to the Community Housing Trust to help out with affordable housing. Effectively, it was uh, creating a new levy or tax, if you like, on land wealth. So that is explosive in the New Zealand environment. And it was uh, accused of being a land tax during the election campaign. And uh, we had the election results. And interestingly, since then, the Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust has proposed to the council that they 
soften these rules to take back to the original uh, um, plan, which was to tax the big developers on the new uh, big developments, not to tax the mums and dads doing infill housing. So we don't know yet whether or not the council has agreed to that. We should find out in the next couple of weeks, but it's still worth watching very closely. The risk is, of course, that the whole thing gets thrown out, the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. That would be fairly disastrous uh, and uh, really snuff things out from a local point of view, and obviously it's snuffed out from a central point of view. But if it is approved, then there's a model, a copy and paste for other councils to plug into their district plans in the coming decade of reform under the RMA for those people who are desperate to see uh, some of their unearned uh, wealth on residential land values uh, distributed to help at least build some new affordable homes. Now, I've included in the email newsletter a link to a couple of podcasts, one of which I produced uh, an interview with Julie Scott, the CEO of the Housing Trust in Queenstown, who explains uh, the situation and what's going on. And then one I wasn't involved in, but which is also very useful, from Community Housing Aotearoa's. And those podcasts will give you more information, and I've included links to the Queenstown proposal and um, various analysis, including one from Sense Partners, the Shamabil Jakob uh, consultancy, lead consultancy, uh, that did a piece on inclusionary zoning. There's also a big report done on it by Community Housing Aotearoa. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was the Dawn Chorus from the Kaka on Wednesday, the 7th of December. Kakite anō.